Joe Ghoul had a prominent upbringing, but makes the choice to stroll and ponder through life, writing an oral history of our time, filled with things he's seen and heard. When a journalist takes interest in his writings, he finds a secret only time will tell. The book, Joe Gould's Secret, the author, Joseph Mitchell. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let Let's us get lit! Mm. This is Alexis. Hey, y'all. Hey, this is Kari. You're listening to Lit Society, a show about, a podcast about books and drama, yeah, right? Yeah, we a show, too. We show up to the podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that works. So, Kari, how's it been? I feel like I haven't seen you in ages. Well, you're so kind. It's been great. You haven't seen me because I've been putting off reading today's book. <laughs> You so kind not to put me on blast, but we got it done. I got it done finally uh, last night. What about you? What's been going on? Uh, you know, back in the office, going in there doing stuff and, you know. Yeah, you're back to work. business as usual. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's essentially, officially business as usual. I, um, I'm only back two days, but still, I'm back. Yeah, so. that's a lot. That's intense. After a year and a half of working from home. Do you see some benefits, though, to going back to the office? No. If I can play devil's advocate. That's fine. I don't need to be advocating for the devil anyway. Okay, you'd rather be at home. I got it. I'd rather be at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, let's move along. I get the reference. Mm -hmm. Each week, readers, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we are reading. This week, we're going to talk about, guess what? Bohemians. Oh, thank you. So I can stop pretending I know what that means. Well, let's get to the bottom of it right now. Throughout the book, our protagonist is referred to as a bohemian. Can I tell you what I think it means? I'll ask you in just a few seconds. (laughs) So I asked myself, what is a bohemian? I've heard the word used before. I even thought I knew what it meant. I like to even call myself a bohemian in the early days. Mm -hmm. I always thought it was a person that travels around, not connected to any one place. Or, of course, you know, the familiar references with the bohemian look. So I asked a couple people what they thought. (laughs) And one person, well, actually, two people said people from the Bahamas. (laughs) Well, okay, Bahamians. Shout out to all (laughs) my Bahamian brethren. Yes. (laughs) Yes. There are other people said a style of casual dress. Another person said an island casual look. And one person said an eclectic person that's kind of go with the flowy. Kari, now's your turn. Please share with me what how you understand the word Bohemian and what do you think when you hear it or see the word? Oh, so I can talk now? Yes, please. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that I, oh my God. <laughs> so I think a uh, Bohemian is a no a descendant of the nomadic Roma people, and I think that they have these beautiful, intense green blue eyes. Um, I think they have been, um disparaged I think is the word throughout history called things like gypsies and you know other um slurs uh and that's what I really think bohemian people are now how that translates if I'm right to you know me decorating my living room with leather and textiles and um Uh. ivy and wearing uh turbans like you and Nick Cannon you know, I consider myself <laughs> Bohemian too, boho, right? Boho, I don't chic, understand right? the connection, so I'm I'm excited to be enlightened. All right, well here we go. Let us a jig in to what <laughs> are the Bohemians? So I found an article on the BBC News. It's from 2011, and it tells us. 
that the word has been talked about for a while, kind of talked um, with different meanings. It said the term bohemian originally had derogatory undertones and it was given to the Roma gypsies. Get out! Wait, so which term is derogatory? Gypsy or bohemian? Let me go on. It's commonly believed by the French to have originated in Bohemia, which is in Central Europe. So Bohemia is a place in the Czech Republic. Bohemian is used to refer to all Czech people. The term gypsy comes from Europeans mistakenly believing the Roma people came from Egypt. So, oh, okay. Because they have darker skin. Yes, yes. Roma or Romani people are originally a Hindu people from northern India. And that's according to linguistic and genetic evidence. They are also like our brothers in dreads because they also used to wear dreads back in the day. Oh, interesting. I didn't see that. Traditionally uh, nomadic. Inter- mm, itinerants that's the word or people that travel from place to place they mostly live throughout Europe not just one these people roamed the earth um, they're also here in the Americas and it's said that they adapt to whatever country they move to Yeah, they were people that were persecuted um, by Hitler they were one- among the first people to be brought into the concentration concentration camps um and they have been abused over the course of years by different people very interesting so one it's a location and name the citizens of said location two a derogatory term for a group of people um from northern india the oxford english dictionary though defines it as an artist a literary man an author who leads a free vagabond or regular life, not being particular as to the society he frequents, and they generally despise conventionalities. So the word, now that's how the Oxford Dictionary sees it. It's a people, a type of person anyway, but an artisty person. The word, Bohemian was romanticized in the play Scene de la Vie du Bohème or Scenes of Bohemian Life. Mm-hmm. I think I got that right. And it's by Henry uh, Merge. And that um, play was a bunch of vignettes about Bohemian life in the Latin Quarter of Paris. And that play was pretty popular. It was then um, turned into an opera by Puccini. And that opera, do you know the name of it? La Boheme. Yes, 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 indeed. And it stole, I won't say stole, but it it took from that play and made it its own. And again, um, that made it pretty popular. And people, um, they romanticize it. You know, they began to appreciate it more, I, I think. And um, from that, we came dress, the Bohemian dress. When they did that play and then the opera, Bohemian dress came out of that. Mm-hmm. So that style of closing. And so then gypsy clothes became the fashion that was um, sparking the styles that we see today um, through people uh, who are considered lovers of boho chic. Um, the article referenced people like Sienna Miller or Kate Moss. Throwback. And artists <laughs> and poets that include like Van Gogh. They characterize bohemian ideals. Yeah. So basically and, you talk about these people, ostracize them, kill them in droves. And then you say, oh, they chic though. And let's start dressing like them. And that's kind of gross. It is what happened. Mm-hmm. And then so everywhere, 
everybody has a view of what Bohemian is. It's an outsider. They define them. They define themselves as outsiders. Um, the world defines them as outsiders. And this is from the article. And they are also regard, regarded as subversive, elitist, and a little bit immature, which is interesting. But that's what the article mentioned. In essence, bohemianism represented a personal, cultural, or social reaction to the bourgeois life. Mm -hmm. So the middle class. So it was opposed to that. And they were kind of against everything that the bourgeois was doing. Mm -hmm. And that is where the name, the word bohemian comes from. Again, it's the people of Bohemia, the Czech people. And it's also an unconventional or nonconformist artsy person. And of course, then that style of dress where people wear long, flowy, tiered skirts and dresses, peasant blouses, um, wooden jewelry, embroidery, fringe hands, handbags, jewels, um, embellished flat sandals. A lot of the styles that are common today. <laughs> the right? basics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they're often yeah. um, layered and colorful. These styles were very popular in the 2000s, throughout the 2000s, essentially. Yeah. That is so, so interesting. In the book that we're reviewing today, the Joe Gould is an unconventional person. Um, he doesn't conform to uh, the writing norms and he moves about. He rejects all conventional ideals of living. So that is what a bohemian is. So now, how do you feel about hearing that information? Does it make you um, do anything different? It makes me feel a little icky about the term bohemian. However, I do think that widely our understanding of it has changed. Um, it'd be mm -hmm. nice if we educated ourselves on the people who inspired this. Um, I mean, the way Bohemians now dress is no doubt not at all like Roma people dressed <laughs> um, back then in or in the play that was inspired by their so-called lifestyle. Um, we always want to take things and like make it fit us. And I don't know. It's just mm -hmm. kind of gross. I, I do think it's kind of gross. However, I, I, if you take that second meeting, the someone who lives an unconventional life is very artsy. I love that idea with a retirement plan. So to me, the perfect <laughs> life, <laughs> the perfect style of living would be somebody not tied down to the convention, conventionalities, conventionalities of society, um, who also is able to have some like financial security. Yeah, I love that. That is a person that I would like to be. <laughs> oh, and that's I you. How, yeah, I, I, I don't know if you know, but that's you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, I I live for that. I aspire to that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I assure you, you do it well. But that's that. Yeah, that's that's it. So why don't we take a quick break before we jump into our author and context? <laughs> Give us some context and information about our author. Yes, and it warms my heart to talk about this man, Joseph Quincy Mitchell, um, born July 27, 1908. Everything about him embodies a certain time in my life, what I aspire to um, as a writer at the time. Um, and he is widely considered to be one of the greatest, you know, modern-ish American writers nonfiction writers. He's best known for his profiles in the New Yorker magazine and the essays he published while he was a writer with the magazine. His style of writing. Remember I told you how um, early writing journalism students or uh, creative writing students are always told, get rid of your adjectives. There are better yeah. ways to explain a situation. Right. Well, he's mm -hmm. a master at this. He, he knows how to write in a way that's very simple, direct, but captivating. And it's this profession as a writer that has forever cemented his position as like an icon in the hearts of journalism students and amateur writers. I say this because Mitchell lived and possibly originated this ideal writer's life. There are shows, uh -huh. you know, based on writers and you like, 
is this a job? Like they just shop and hang out with their friends and write whenever they feel like it. And someone pays them for this. Well, this was his life for real. He moved from his family home in North Carolina. So he grew up in like a small town left for the big city. And um, with this dream of becoming a reporter and then a writer, he like made a home for himself and a place for himself in New York, um, cemented a career having not finished university. (laughs) No degree. Um, It can be done. You don't need a degree to write a book. This is like the 1900s, but sure. (laughs) Um, He'd walk the streets of New York. (laughs) He'd walk the streets with a fedora and like a Burberry, you know, trench, living in interesting neighborhoods. You know, he wasn't slumming it, securing a lifestyle with those way above the poverty line. You know, he rubbed elbows with, you know, key writers of the time okay and and in fact when the new yorker magazine first started it was like an okay magazine i mean imagine the chicagoan or uh what's that newspaper we used to have in chicago the red eye no not the red eye i actually wrote an article for you that and they they stopped yeah um, and chance the rapper bought them but then we didn't hear nothing else about it it don't matter was it the chicagoist Mm. Anyway, sorry, I I can't think of it. I have an article in there, though. If you Google Kari Herrera, you'll find it. Okay, okay. But see, I was trying to be like Joseph Mitchell. Folks was like, nah, you you black and you a woman and this is the 2000s. (laughs) Get your life together. So, um, but um, when the New Yorker magazine started, it was like, okay, it wasn't doing that great. But his profiles, Mitchell's profiles were so um, captivating and people loved them so much that that's kind of what bolstered the magazine. So they paid him in pennies when he started. And then as New- the New Yorker became the New Yorker, we'll get into this. But they were like, well, let's start paying you real money no matter what you do. And so, no matter what you do became a thing. Yeah, because he was writing at his leisure, talking to these people that he deemed interesting and being paid for it all. Um, but in truth, his life was more rich and complex than what it seemed on the surface. So he battled with depression like a lot of writers um, his entire life. And the people he profiled stayed with him in his psyche. So it was hard for him to mm. shake these people's stories, especially is that the case with Joe Gould, Um, whose story we'll get into today. Through his writing, Joseph Mitchell gave a voice to the underdogs of New York City and the forgotten men and women who um, like lived on the street. This includes, but it's not limited to the profile he wrote on Joe Gould. Mitchell um, profiled bar owners, petty thieves, houseless artists, and bearded ladies. So (laughs) he was like... um, And that's why people loved his profiles because he was giving a voice to... Um, people that di- that weren't in the world of the bourgeoisie will say, you know, mm-hmm. Wall Street people didn't know who these bohemians were unless they knew them for, you know, um, terrible things that they did in secret, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so by reading these profiles, they got to know these people that kind of made New York what it is. So. Yeah. So through the telling of these stories, he also Mitchell also reckoned with his own anxiety and own insecurity because he saw himself in these people. Um, In fact, from the time his book, The Secret of Joe Gould, and I remember telling you that this was a short story, not really a book. I apologize. It was also published as a book, uh, which you no doubt found out in 1964. Mm -hmm. So from that time that was published in 1964 till Mitchell died a little over 30 years later, he worked at The New Yorker. And how many um, articles did he publish in that time? Two. Zero. (laughs) <laughs> for over 30 years books, books or articles because weren't these published in the new yorker so after this the secret of joe gould which was published in the new yorker as like the seagull something but after the professor book, seagull professor seagull thank you so after that came out in the new yorker and then the secret of joe gould which remember he goes back to that new yorker piece right. but he also adds on to it After that was done in 1964, he stayed on for over 30 years and wrote nothing and they paid him. He went to his office every day. No one knows what he did in there. He closed the door at the end of the day. He walked out and went home and got a check every week. Now, tell me that ain't the life. 
That is the life. Over I believe in it. Years. I want a life just like it. That's why they took your office away at your job. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> however, 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 he was failing, right? in his career but at home his wife and his children saw him as like the perfect dad and father they have nothing mm-hmm. but great things to say about him if he battled with depression he did not necessarily show that at home he was very attentive to them and it was just at work that he didn't do nothing which if yeah. you gonna slack somewhere in your life don't make it home <laughs> so yeah, be all great at home yeah. go to work exactly and still get paid and do you okay <laughs> do you it's terrible and also you know maybe be a man and maybe be white and maybe let it be 1940 so about joe gould mitchell told the washington post you pick someone so close that in fact you are writing about yourself joe mm. gould had to leave home because he didn't fit in the same way i had to leave home because i didn't fit in talking to joe gould all those years he became me in a way if you see what i mean and i think we do mitchell we do so now about the drama of joe mitchell's life so uh, I've mentioned how writers admire Mitchell um, posthumously elevating him to like Hemingwayan status. And oh. uh, yeah, so uh, but does he deserve all of that? I have some very sad news, you guys, if you don't already know. In the biography about Mitchell's life written by Thomas Kunkel titled Man in Profile, Joseph Mitchell of the New Yorker, certain uncomfortable truths and speculation were examined. First, it seems Mitchell took creative liberty with the lives and quotes of his subjects. That's bad. <laughs> so, so what does that mean exactly? Um, that means, what did you just say? What does that mean exactly on Sun or what are we recording Thursday? Well, then maybe I'll write a book about you and I'll say, um, you said, I know exactly what that means on a Tuesday. It's not exactly true, but maybe it works for the story I'm forming. So there's truth in it, but especially as a reporter, uh, that truth, you cannot compromise. And then as a nonfiction writer in a magazine, especially like The New Yorker, you can't be doing little stuff like that to fit your story, to create this whole cohesive experience for the reader. You can't do that. You got to find a better way uh, to make that experience compelling. For the one reading it. Um, But for example, I'll give an example. He actually did. He'd sometimes rewrite direct quotes to make them more interesting. He's the writer. Not everyone's a great writer. Direct quotes. So sometimes (laughs) so sometimes he'd be like, oh, you saying it's boring. And so he would rewrite it to make it interesting. This is so bad. That don't Um, sound right or good. He'd move events from one day to another to better fit his timeline. but worst of all, you guys, he would create. Oh, I feel. Oh, I'm, I'm getting hot. I don't like talking about this. <laughs> he would create composite characters. Dum, 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 dum. So composite characters. Lit Society is a podcast hosted by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. But maybe in the book about our life, we will be just so boring that they'll make one person named Kari Anaria, and she will embody the best, most interesting parts of both of us. That's what they do in movies, don't they? Movies, fictional movies. Sure. This is nonfiction writing, and it is to be a holier work. You cannot do that. That in a nonfiction work is a lie. Full stop. One of Period. His, period. Per. So one of his profiles earned the attention of a director who was like, I want to turn this into a musical is so good. And Mitchell responded to the subject, um, responded to him, letting him know, hey, hey, don't do that because this subject don't even exist. I invented him. Quote, I invented him, he said, because no one in the city properly represented the culture he wanted to examine. Mitchell wanted to examine. So he created a composite character that he felt better embodied the life he was trying to showcase. This is bad, bad, bad. What's worse, the New Yorkers seem to know about and sanction oh. these nefarious practices um, because they're, his profiles help the magazine, you guys. Wow, <laughs> so the business, yeah. the business. Yeah, um, but with all of that said, I mean, how must that feel for, the, the, what you can't lie about is that his writing was good. Great, he's a great writer. 
the factuality of his stories. And I'm not saying Joe Gould, because as far as we know, this is actually one man that a lot of people can vouch existed. His lifestyle people can vouch for. So this seems to be as truthful as possible. But it's also the last work Mitchell wrote. And, um, you know, going over 30 years with these like lies and then not writing really he wrote but not publishing anything not feeling anything was good enough to publish mm-hmm. um he once like was um telling a friend sometimes i wish they just fire me and i would go home to north carolina mm. he reminded me so much of joe gould <laughs> you read me like this mm-hmm. who is this about Yes, mm-hmm. that's how I saw that. Well, that's, that's what I have on Mitchell. Did you have anything? No, I just remember um, reading about him and I just remember reading about him and seeing that his life really mirrored Joe Gould. Um, I immediately said Joe Mitchell is Joe Gould, the, um, just the way he functioned in his life from what I read. So. That was all very interesting. And, but then, of course, there's the film that Stanley Tucci did. Yeah, Stanley Tucci was so inspired by this that he directed and starred in it as Joe Mitchell. <laughs> well, thank you, Kari. Would you uh, share with us a brief synopsis without spoilers before our deep dive? Sure. No spoiler summary. Joe Gould's Secret is the nonfiction story of a writer, his subject, and the singular truth that both of them are hiding from the world. It's as much about Gould, an eccentric bohemian flophouse frequenter, as it is about Mitchell, a writer for the New York Magazine, New Yorker Magazine, battling with doubt and depression. In the end, one will expose the other and by doing so, perhaps free them both. Now that is interesting. Alexis, what were your first thoughts of Joe Gould's Secret? What's the name of this? Yeah, Joe Gould's Secret. Uh, Joe Gould's Secret. So um, when I saw the cover, I was not interested in Joe Gould's Secret. Why? What was the cover like? Describe it. It's the picture of the man that older gent older white man looking really scraggly yeah um and i just wasn't interested in his story oh you so bourgeois (laughs) at all let me assure you Mm -hmm. at all so kari who do you think uh, would enjoy reading this book lovers of nonfiction um profile essays if you like hearing about one person's life in three to four pages you will really love this <laughs> wow. So are we covering uh well I guess they're together. Anyway. The, so listen. no, the profile that he did, the professor of seagulls, is uh-huh. that it? And yeah. Joe Gulls, yeah, they're together. So we're going to I'm actually not going to touch too much on the original profile. I'll refer okay. to it, but I'm going to just stick with what he wrote after that came out. That's okay. A good question. Sounds mm-hmm. good. Sounds good. Well, are we ready to jump in? Uh, will it be spoiler field or nah? Two things. Yeah, I'm a spoiler. This is like really old. And second, <laughs> you guys, I am dying. I just got to turn on the AC for 10 minutes. Okay. Is that okay? Okay. I'm so right. sorry, y'all. Sorry if y'all hear it in the background. I just want y'all to know what's going on. <laughs> okay. And I'm ready. <laughs> you have the floor. Okay. Oh, and also, you guys, uh, the first episode of every month is a video podcast. So if you'd like to see our faces, make sure you head over to YouTube and we will start now. And the growth of my tree. Okay. The yes. Growth. Y'all have really been wanting to know about Shakisha, that twig that's behind Alexis in all of our video podcasts. <laughs> she growing. She's growing. Her life. She's doing okay or whatever. She's she struggling. She is doing but... really well. She's trying. I now... wish you could see the bottom of her. Okay. I mean, she's <laughs> like, just meet her. She's wonderful. Sure. Okay. And now, Joe Gould's Secret by the Lit Society Podcast. <laughs> Part one Childlike and Freak Shows. So, you guys, a newspaper reporter is working on a story near a courthouse in New York City. He lives, um, he leaves women's court and makes his way to a Greek restaurant, a court hangout for lunch. Um, there he finds like bailiffs and, you know, whatever, secret jury members. You know, everybody's getting lunch. He takes a seat 
enjoys a coffee with a probation officer and the restaurant's owner when a curious looking man walks in. The five foot four waif is dirty. There are dark streaks across his face. His overcoat is two or three sizes too large. And the bald top of his head um, is accentuated by like long strands of hair that grow from the sides. And that's all met with the, like this unkept, bushy, dirty beard on his face. It's not a good look, honestly. Not, it ain't cute, you know. Mm-mm. Reluctantly, the restaurant owner looks at him, gets up, and hands him a plate of scraps. Um, that man who walked in, the five foot four waif, wasn't supposed to come until all the paying customers left, but he said he couldn't wait. That man is Joe Gould, and the year is 1932. Now, I'm going to um, quote some things directly from Mitchell because I want to share his writing style with you guys if you are unfamiliar. So he says, despite his beard, the man in the oversized overcoat, bareheaded and dirty faced, had something childlike and lost about him. A child who'd been up in the attic with other children trying on grown ups clothes and had become tired of the game and wandered off. That's him describing Joe Gould. Toward the end of the 30s, the newspaper reporter becomes a writer for The New Yorker and his editor allows him to start a project he's been turning over in his head for years, a profile on Joe Gould. I was afraid that I might have trouble persuading Gould to talk about himself. I really knew next to nothing about him and I got the impression that he was austere and aloof and I decided that I had better talk with some people who knew him or were acquainted with him, at least, and see if I could find out the best way to approach him. I left the office around 11 and went down to the village and began going into places along 6th Avenue and bringing up Gould's name and getting into conversations about him with bartenders and waiters and with old-time villagers they pointed out for me among their customers. In the middle of the afternoon, I telephoned the switchboard operator at the office and asked if there were any messages from me as I customarily did when I was out. And she immediately switched me to the receptionist who said that a man had been sitting in the reception room for an hour or so waiting for me to return. I'll put him on the phone, she said. Hello, this is Joe Gould, the man said. I heard you wanted to talk to me, so I dropped in. But the thing is, I'm supposed to go to the clinic at the Eye and Ear Infirmary at 2nd Avenue and 13th Street and pick up a prescription for some eye trouble I've been having. And if it's one kind of prescription, it won't cost anything, but if it's another kind, it may cost around $2. And I've just discovered that I don't have any money with me and it's getting late and I wonder if you ask your receptionist to lend me $2 and you can pay her back when you come in and we can meet anytime you say and have a talk and I'll pay you back then. The receptionist broke in and said that she would lend him the money. And then Gould came back on the phone and we agreed to meet at 930 the next morning in a diner on 6th Avenue in the village called the Jefferson. He suggested both the time and the place. When I got back to the office, I gave the receptionist her two dollars. He was a terribly dirty little man and terribly nosy, she said. And I was glad to get him out of here. What was he nosy about, I asked. Well, for one thing, she said, He wanted to know how much I make. Also, she continued, handing me a folded slip of paper. He gave me this note as he was leaving and told me not to read it until he got on the elevator. You have beautiful shoulders, my dear, the note said, and I should like to kiss them. He also left a note for you, she said, handing me another folded slip of paper. On second thought, this note said, 9.30 is a little early for me. Let us make it 11.00. Mitchell says, looking straight at me, he looks straight through me. I have seen the same deceptively blank expression on the faces of old freaks sitting on platforms and freak shows and on the faces of old apes in zoos on Sunday afternoons. Thus began the partnership that would kill both men in different ways. Mm. Part two. Part two, an oral history of our times. So... Gould was an easy subject for the writer in that Gould loved talking about himself. He'd go on and on about his wasp upbringing, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and how his family had a legacy that included being some of the first colonizers in America and how his grandfather and father and himself were all Harvard men. Gould, yeah, yeah. Gould was a difficult subject, however, in that he was often late 
sometimes confused and preferred to be drunk. He spent his days sleeping in flop houses behind church columns and in church pews and begging in this circle of charitable friends he collected over the years. So he like knew all these um, entrepreneurs and artists and he would go around each day to their homes or places of work and ask them for money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A donation for the Joe Gould Fund, he'd ask. Um, And they would, especially in the village, give them give him money not like a whole lot but they would constantly give him money um and so consistently giving him this money he was able to scratch out and crawl through life many of these sponsors saw gould as a relic from a more romantic time in new york city whether or not that time actually existed um when art was the most important thing about living in new york um others gave because they believed in his purpose to write an oral history of our times Alexis, can you explain what an oral history of our times is? So that is people telling their story, okay, and their environment, and they're telling it to Joe Gould. So Joe Gould then writes this story down. So he's got everybody's story, the important stuff. You know, not the stuff for history books, but the real life stuff. Yeah. Yep. And so by observing the lives of those around him and recording the goings on, Gould set about compiling an exhaustive record of modern life he called the oral history. And he claimed that oral history held more truth than, like you said, the formalized history uh, taught in schools and textbooks by professors as it gave voices to the lower classes that were representative of true humanity. Mm -hmm. The book is the key that will make Gould's profile worthy of publication. Like that's kind of like the gem in the profile is going to be this bits and pieces of the oral history. But that book that Gould is writing is a huge mystery wrapped in an enigma, in an enigma, in an enigma. It's an enigma. enigma. Yeah. So (laughs) no one has ever read it, not in its entirety. In fact, the full manuscript is said to be seven feet tall. Drafts are saved in the closets and stock rooms of friends who donate to the Joe Gould Fund. Gould himself has pitched the book in exchange for a healthy cash advance. No publisher has taken the bait. <laughs> they like, get out of here, houseless man. <laughs> this Thank is you. nonsense. Get out of here. <laughs> Gould is now resigned to the belief that his greatest work will be published, celebrated, and taught in schools across the world only after he dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our writer, Mitchell, decides he must read a portion of an oral history before continuing these late night clandestine meetings and interviews with Gould. They are like draining him. And he's a young writer at this time, youngish, but still Gould is like exhausting. (laughs) He has an exhausting personality. The times that they're talking are like late at night for far too long and it's getting to be too much. So he's like, if I'm going to continue... I need to at least read a portion of an oral history. He got all these stories to tell and he is just talking like nonstop. You just would fall asleep listening to him if you didn't have a goal in mind. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So um, (laughs) Gould hands the writer Mitchell a portfolio containing um, a composition notebook and clippings from published segments of an oral history. So supposedly sections of it has have been published in various accredited journals. But all of it is nonsense. First of all, (laughs) an oral history is supposed to be a collection of dialogue, right? Harvested through conversations and eavesdropping. But the sections published and written are mostly essays and nonsensical observations by Gould. Second, the essays that existed were repetitive, many dealing with Gould's childhood and his relationship with his father over and over again. Gould would tell the same story in different ways. There are three topics. Mm -hmm. It was like he was trying to perfect his uh, story about his relationship with his father. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. So there are three topics that consumed Gould. And the first was his relationship with his parents who were both disappointed and like tortured by him. Um, they, they were respectable wasps and they had mm-hmm. this son who seemed weird 
and probably had physicians. His father was a physician. He was expected to be a physician. And he was just his mama people came over on the Santa Marina and the whatever they call. So so they like thought they was somebody. They had like the biggest house in the town. And then they got this son who everyone can see something is unnormal about him. So and it was during a time when that was not allowed. Right. (laughs) You know, no one really knew how to address certain issues. So um, that second of all, nightshade foods such as tomatoes. Now, there is a group of people obsessed with nightshade foods even right now. And people will tell you that nightshade foods are going to kill you. Am I saying it right? Nightshade foods. So, no, listen, <laughs> listen. I love that you mentioned nightshade. So yeah. I never heard of that until I wanted to order from a restaurant more recently. It was a vegan restaurant and it was um, raw vegan and they listed nightshades. And I'm like, what is that? Mushrooms? But I, I like... I still don't know what it is. Like, literally, I don't know what it is. Please explain. I'd love to No, I won't get involved in that cult of nightshade haters. I think if it comes (laughs) from the earth, it has some benefit. But maybe the way we're growing tomatoes. I don't know. But anyway, Joe Gould. Somebody tell us or me. I would like to know because I am confused. So so Joe Gould also was obsessed with like tomatoes and other nightshade foods. And um, he saw them as evil. (laughs) So he's like. For real, he could exist right now today and probably run for, like, Congress. So, um, <laughs> lastly, Native Americans. Dig. Whom, <laughs> noted. Whom he respects and feels he understands. So, those three subjects he would just constantly write about. Right. However, there's one thing that catches the New Yorker writer's eye. So, Mitchell sees in all of this writing one line that sticks with him. And it's something interesting that Joe Gould probably didn't even know he was putting in there. And the line is this. I would judge the sanest man to be him who most firmly realizes the tragic isolation of humanity and pursues his essential purpose calmly. I suppose I feel about it in this way because I have a delusion of grandeur. I believe myself to be Joe Gould. Mm. So that's stuck with Mitchell. Part three, revealing. (laughs) So... (laughs) Mitchell says, I was young then and much more courteous to older people and to everyone else for that matter, as I look back on it, than I should have been. Also, I had not yet found out about time. I was still under the illusion that I had plenty of time, time for this, time for that, time for everything, time to waste, end quote. The two men had created a schedule unsustainable for anyone with a home and a job. They meet wherever Gould chose. And Ghoul would, of course, ask the writer to buy him a drink, a coffee, some eggs, a drink, and another drink. Gould will then talk and talk and talk sometimes for 10 hours, 12 hours at a time, growing more and more elaborate and colorful until he was drunk and useless. These stories, like Gould's writings, were repetitive. Where was this great work, the oral history? Months later, and Mitchell was no closer to knowing what Gould's book held. So the profile is published. The title is Professor Siegel. Mitchell publishes it in The New Yorker. People love it. It is less about an oral history and more about Gould as a man. Friends who had cut Gould off um, and stopped contributing to his fun welcome him back to their restaurants and studios. (laughs) He was a star to tourists who sat and listened to him talk, which, you know, he loved. Mm-hmm. But our writer, Mitchell, the man who had spent all of those nights listening to Gould, started to feel sick at the thought of Gould, reluctant to take his calls or even leave his office for fear Gould might be waiting for him outside of the door. Gould was getting on his nerves. Terribly. And I completely understood this. Um, yes. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get out already. Shoot. We done. We done. What what is there to talk about? What's worse, as time went on, Gould became dependent on their conversations. Mitchell says, and I quote, despite the difference in our ages, when he talked to me, he might have been talking to someone who had known him all his life. When he spoke of his uncle Oscar, for example, he knew that I knew who he was referring to, um, his mother's brother, Oscar Vroom, whom his mother virtually worshipped. And he knew that I knew what his father thought of Oscar Vume and what Oscar Vroom thought of his father. 
By talking to me, he could bring back his past. He could keep it alive. I realized also there was no getting away from the fact that the more he talked to me, the more I would know about his past. And the more I knew about his past, the more important talking to me would become to him. This scared me. And I set out deliberately to get him off my back and if necessary, onto somebody else, somebody else's back as soon as possible. The best way to do this, I decided, was to get an editor or a publisher interested in the oral history. So the profile piece in The New Yorker is done, but Gould won't go away. Mitchell is like, I got to get your book published so you can stop talking to me. Mitchell reaches out to a man named Pierce, a friend in the publishing business. He arranges to meet with Gould, Pierce does, at Mitchell's office. During their conversation, Gould is cold and aloof. His attitude is intensified as Pierce is insistent that he must see an oral history before agreeing to publish it and definitely before giving you an advance. Gould finally puts his foot down. An oral history will not be seen or read until he's dead, and that's that. Pierce leaves, and Mitchell is furious. I'm beginning to believe, I went on, that the oral history doesn't exist. This remark came from my unconscious, and I was barely aware of the meaning of what I was saying. I was simply getting rid of my anger. But the next moment, glancing at Ghoul's face, I knew as well as I knew anything that I had blundered upon the truth about the oral history. My God, I said. It doesn't exist. I was appalled. There isn't any such thing as an oral history, I said. It doesn't exist. I stared at Gould, and Gould stared at me. His face was expressionless. The woman who owns the duck and chicken farm doesn't exist, I said. And her brother, who at the stroke doesn't exist. And her niece doesn't exist. And the Polish farmer and his wife who look after the ducks and chickens don't exist. And the ducks and chickens don't exist. And the cellar that the oral history is stored in doesn't exist. And the oral history doesn't exist. Gould got up and went over to the window and stood there looking out with his back to me. It exists in your mind, I I guess, I said, recovering a little from my surprise. But you've always been too lazy to write it down. All that really exists is those so-called essay chapters. That's all you've been doing all through the years, writing new versions of those chapters about the death of your father and the death of your mother and the dread tomato habit and the Indians out in North Dakota and maybe a dozen others or a couple of dozen others and correcting them and revising them and tearing them up and starting all over again. Gould turned and faced me and said something, but his voice was low and indistinct. If I heard him right, and I have often wondered if I did hear him right, he said, it's not a question of laziness. Then, evidently deciding not to say any more, he turned his back on me again. Mitchell says, However, I had thought about the matter only a short while before I came to the conclusion that he hadn't been talking about the oral history all those years and making large statements about its length and its bulk and its importance to posterity and comparing it to such works as the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire only in order to dupe people like me, but also in order to dupe himself. He must have found out long ago that he didn't have the genius or the talent or maybe the self-confidence or the industry or the determination to bring off a work as huge and grand as he had envisioned. And falling back on writing those so-called essay chapters, writing them and rewriting them, and either because he was too lazy or because he was too much of a perfectionist, he hadn't been able to finish even them. Still, a large part of the time, he very likely went around believing in some hazy, self-deceiving, self-protecting way that the oral history did exist, oral chapters as well as essay chapters. The oral part of it might not exactly be down on paper, but he had it all in his head. 
And any day now, he was going to start getting it down. It was easy for me to see how this could be, for it reminded me of a novel that I had once intended to write, Mm. end quote. Mm. So Mitchell then goes on to give a synopsis of a book that sounds pretty interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a story which he's thought through thoroughly and never written down. Mitchell then decides he feels a great deal of respect for Gould. Gould could have stayed in the town he grew up in where everyone, including his parents, saw him as a fool. But he decided instead to create a mask for himself. Hiding behind that mask, he created a complicated character and began came like living, breathing art. He was a character more complicated, more complex than those of the greater, greatest writers of his time. Mm. So Mitchell concludes, and this is the last quote. If I asked Gould the questions I had planned to ask him, I suddenly realized. And if he had came out and admitted that the oral history did not exist, that it was indeed a mare's nest, I might be put in the position of having to do something about it. Mm. I might be very well forced to unmask him. I found this thought painful. The oral history was his life preserver, his only way of keeping afloat. And I didn't want to see him drown. Yeah. That's deep. Like like we taking a break. No, I got a couple of questions for you. So, Alexis, what is this book about? What do you think? You know what? I'm so slow. I'm just going to tell you, I'm really Excuse slow. Excuse me? That's not true. No, no. Back listen. up. <laughs> let, let, I'll explain. I'll explain. I'm reading this book and I'm not knowing um, that Joe Mitchell is our author. And so I get to the end of the book and I look up the author and I was like, his name is just like the man in the Wait, book. Wait, but it's nonfiction. So who else could it be? He's saying stuff like, I did this and I did that. I thought it was a fiction. Oh, okay. So I'm like, oh, this is mm, this is interesting. His name is just like that. Okay, and stop. You know- Full stop. Because I want to ask you. First of all, that can happen. You can pick up a nonfiction and think it's fiction. Reading it, thinking it was fiction. What did you think of the book? I thought it was. I didn't love it. It wasn't my favorite read. Um, I guess we jump in a little, but it wasn't my favorite read. But it was interesting. And so when I read about Joseph Mitchell, I was like, this is just his, he retelling his story. So that's all I said. I just put that together as his story. Okay, pause that and yeah, revisit it during our final verdict. Because I like the way you were making me think about some things. Okay, then um, second question I want to ask you is what makes this story unique to you? Well, it was a fiction book when I was reading it. But it was unique because he had this idea, which I think is a fantastic idea, is to provide an oral history of our lives, um, you know. And I, I was excited about this seven foot, uh, nine million word book yeah, exactly, that yeah. he was creating. I was like, I might read that. I, it, it reminded me of the, you know, there's a Instagram page and I think it's called Humans he, of New York. Humans of New York. It made mm-hmm. me think of that. So, yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. a great comparison. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so mm-hmm. no, it's going to follow you with that same question. Yeah. So I think this book is about uh, Joe Mitchell. And I think it's about how he sees himself and time and how time, um, you know, people say time waits for no man. But in that meantime, in that means in the meantime, while it's not waiting, it's also devouring and destroying everything in its path. Time don't wait. And if you don't hop on time, it will roll over you. So um, I think these are two men who see time as like an enemy. Uh, They didn't have enough time to do what they wanted to do. But if they had a million years, they never would have did it. They were either, I don't think it's lazy. I think you can just get in your own way. And I think this book is about getting in your own way. Oh, totally agree with that. Because he, in within the book, Joe Mitchell made a way for Joe Gould to write this book. And mm-hmm. he still didn't write it. Yeah. So he got in his own way for sure. Yeah. So should we move on to our final verdict? Do you want to take a break? Yeah, let's do that. Okay.
Inspired by Jill Mitchell. What did you think? What's your final verdict? And would you recommend this book? So it's a it's a short book, and I like short books. You know that. So I read both. But it's the, also like a short book with no chapters. Right. So it's just a straight read through. Yeah. And I was. It, it was interesting how I came about it. I had to actually go look for the up in the hotel book to yep. get the audio of it because the Joe Goulds by itself wasn't there. Um, so I read along with the audio. Um, it, it was an interesting book. I, I, I wasn't in love with it, um, but it was it was definitely very interesting. And he wrote very well. He um, the way he told Joe Gould's story. I, I just really feel like it was him. He was telling his story. And and again, I, I don't know. I, I I didn't know that was a <laughs> a nonfiction piece of work. So yeah, I until you finished it. Yeah. So you know, if you are interested in um, just a quick read, an uh, interesting short story, I would definitely refer this book to you. Um, it's very slow but interesting to hear Joe Mitchell's. Um, writing he writes really well and he has a lot of great quotes within the book that I'm like wow that's that's deep and I wish Mm -hmm. I my markings weren't saved so I can't pull them up and kind of identify them but they were really um it it was a good book it was a good book and I and I guess I would uh, refer it what do you call it Recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would recommend it to someone else. How about you, Kari? What well, I want to ask you, because you thought this was a fiction work, did you think the characters were uh, fleshed out well and thought through? Yeah. So listen, I mean, the when you're talking about Joe Gould and his family history, um, where they've been, their history of Harvard, everybody in the family, a doctor, the expectation that he, too, would be a doctor, his um, his mother. Uh, how she really wanted the best for him, but she couldn't get behind this life of choosing to not do something with your life, which mm-hmm. is ultimately what he chose to do. So, yeah, I thought it was. It was okay. just one character. And I feel like I know a lot about him. What I did want to know is how he turned to drinking. That I felt mm-hmm. like was missing. I would mm-hmm. like to have known how he got to the point where he turned to drinking. That drinking piece was never really discussed. It just says that he drinks a lot. He's a, you know. And I kind of thought that maybe he just picked that up being part of the bohemian crowd at the time because he also used to smoke um, discarded cigarette butts off mm-hmm. the ground. Anything mm-hmm. to distract himself from the physical pain that comes with hunger. And then it was also part of the culture, but I'm that's speculation. So, yeah, I'm sure there's some trauma in his uh, life that wasn't touched on. Yeah, that, and I would like to know. I feel like there could be another piece to this book that actually discussed his trauma because it, obviously there was some, and, and surely it was the effects that um, his father, his father' reaction to him and living up to expectation put upon mm-hmm. him. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. But then he had all these well-to-do friends that would mm-hmm. tolerate him and give him money every once in a while. So it's just yeah. really interesting. So um, reading this book as uh, someone who writes or whatever, I love it because through um, through this clearly being a man profiling himself, Joe Mitchell is writing an essay on himself. And yes, Joe Gould is his subject, but Joe Mitchell is pulling from Joe Gould's life the aspects that remind him the most of himself. Mm. Um, So Mm -hmm. Joe Gould is a full person, but we know about him only um, what also coincides with the issues Joe Mitchell has, his writer's block, his lies, uh, we later find out. And in that way, what we find out about uh, Joe Mitchell posthumously through that biography that came out. I think only like 10 years ago or maybe even five years ago, Mm -hmm. it makes him even more like Joe Gould. The fact that he would reduce himself to these composite characters and rewrite people's quotes to be more interesting. He was very connected to what people thought of him and he thought he could measure up. And in the end, he just stopped publishing because he was probably 
uh, too much of a perfectionist. He never thought he'd measure up to the standards of other people. And maybe that was something that was ingrained in him um, in his religious Southern upbringing. Um, but it stuck with him throughout his life. Um, so I also like that this book is a reminder that if you got a book out there, you trying to, you know, work on once a month and you've been working on it for three years, you better hurry up and finish that book. Because <laughs> at some point you just a liar. <laughs> so, so do do the work. Don't worry about being perfect. That's what editors are for. Do the work, though. Get that story that's in your head and your heart onto paper. Joe Mitchell had a beautiful idea for a novel and a scene that he had thought through really well, but that's a book we'll never have yeah, <laughs> because he just didn't write it. This is the height of his work, right? This, this piece here. This is the most praised thing he's ever written. But um, I think the height of his work is saving and making the New Yorker what it is today. I mean, the New Yorker in an age where print is dead is still the New Yorker. And that has a lot to do with Joe Mitchell. I remember um, writing like a, a journal or an article for my college journal mm -hmm. about f fair trade coffee. Mm -hmm. And before I wrote that, I read a couple Joe Gould pieces oh, really? <laughs> for inspiration. And I've like never stopped doing that. No matter what I'm writing, he's one of the authors. I'll just um, if I'm if I read something, I'm like, man, this sounds like fluff. I'll read a couple things he wrote and then go back to my work to weed out the adjectives and the useless words and condense uh, um, and fill it with meaning instead of words, fill the piece with meaning instead of words. So yeah, I love this story. That's really interesting. It, it seems like such a um, simple story, right? Um, yes. But it's filled with so much. There's so much in within this, this piece of work. Uh, I mean, they said he had notebooks upon notebooks that all said the same thing in them. So that's a part I didn't touch on. But as um, Joe Mitchell is going through the city after Joe Gould dies to recover these notebooks to maybe find the oral history. After all, all the notebooks say the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're about those three subjects he can't stop thinking about. It's almost like a horror movie in that way. Like he opens the composite book and it's like, <laughs> my daddy hated me. And you like, oh, no, <laughs> it's like the beautiful mind. So um, I agree. Yeah. Also, this book taught me a lot of words. Anachronous, affability. Sorry, I didn't know what affability meant. Um, <laughs> a lot of stuff. Typifies. Um, omnibus. Yeah, so croupier. Yeah. Yeah. This this is a great book, um, similar to The Secret Life of Dictionaries for just expanding your vocabulary. So it's a writer's book. Uh, yes, which is what I attribute like to uh, the secret life of dictionaries, a writer's book, um, an educator's book. For the uh, if you love heart. English language, you got So if you see a beautiful dancer, they they're not sweating and heavy panting. Every move they make seems effortless. And, you know, as someone who who is not a dancer on their level, that it takes a lot of effort to get that good. It's the Very same cool. with Joe Mitchell. So he writes in a way that is deceptively simple. And you know, as a speaker of the English language or a writer, that it's not that easy to write that simply. He's right. like that. that um, and he's not universal, university trained. He has no degree. So I think that well. says something. Yeah. Yeah. This man could not exist today is what I'm saying, because he would be forced to get a degree or he would not be able to write for an accredited publication. Oh, So what about um, what do you call them when a person submits and they include your piece um writers who are not like tight. a columnist well, oh no, like a freelance a freelance writer sure but what about those you don't necessarily know the background of all the freelance writers Yeah, you can be a freelance say, writer that's a hard living that's a hard living to make but jo but joseph mitchell was not a freelance writer he was a staff member for the new yorker and he wrote for over 30 years and published nothing. And it was paid. That will never exist again. <laughs> because and what he did. Go ahead. I was going to say, because a New Yorker um, type magazine wouldn't hire him. Mm -mm. Yeah, no. Nah. Mm -mm. The expectation <laughs> is higher that mm -hmm. you will have accomplished these things in order to present right for us. I won't even say higher because you can graduate 
you can get a degree, you can get a master's in the English language and not be a good writer and never be as good as Joseph Mitchell. So I don't know what I'm saying, but there's something we're missing as a society. Yeah. Well, that was that was great. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that little piece. of. You don't want to talk for two more hours about um, the importance of the English language and it's dying. Okay, go ahead. Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) We have books to read, okay? We do. You're right. (laughs) So, Kari, what are we reading next week? I'll find it. (laughs) You do ask this every week. It's too much. Every week. And you should know because we're about to literally record it. Listen, I know we're reading The Last House Guest by Megan Miranda. Oh, Ooh, a riveting wow. thriller. Mm. I hear. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We'll look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought mm-hmm. to you by Alexis, Anaria, and Kari Herrera. Hey. Support the cause by leaving This is my five. bohemian dance. Oh, I need to see this. <laughs> Oh, it's my oh, Bahamian okay. dance, but oh. I'm being like Bahamas, <laughs> the yeah. Bahamas people. Yeah, where Rihanna from? The oh. Bohemians. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, I'm being purposefully obtuse. Okay, okay. leave a five star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Because we folks, love you too, readers. We love you too. If you enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. It's a newsletter, not a newsletter. (laughs) Until next time. That's okay. I don't write either of them. (laughs)